This episode of the Lawfare Podcast is brought to you by Grammarly. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing, making it mistake-free, clear, and effective. Start writing confidently by going to Grammarly.com lawfare to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. In terms of social media, I would argue, again, in America of 20 years ago, we would have already set the rules and protocols. Our retreat, again, from that kind of leadership, I, I think is significant. So we've, you know, the Europeans have already moved forward on, on privacy, California's moved forward, Nevada's moved forward, the Brits and the Australians are moving forward on content, but there are a variety of tools in terms of rules of the road around social media platforms that indirectly get at this issue, very briefly. I think we ought to know what data is being collected about us and what it's worth. To again, educate Americans that Facebook and Google are not free. They are giant sucking sounds of information and they put value on that. Let's at least let Americans know what that value is. Let's let us have the ability to know whether we're being communicated with by a human being versus a bot. Again, there's nothing wrong with a bot, but we ought to have that data point. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. We are in front of a live audience at NYU Law School with uh, the New York uh, University Center for Cybersecurity, the Journal of National Security Law and Policy, and Third Ways Conference on Catching the Cyber Criminals, Reforming Global Law Enforcement. And we have with us today Senator Mark Warner and Congressman Jim Hines, both of the respective intelligence communities. Senator Warner is the vice chairman uh, of the Senate Intelligence Committee and the co-founder of the Senate Cybersecurity Caucus. And uh, Congressman Hines of Connecticut is a member of the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, and let's get right into it without further ado. Uh, I want to start, if we can, by sort of refining the subject at hand. We're here to talk about cybercrime enforcement. You guys are on the intelligence committees, which is we don't think of normally as, as settings of criminal enforcement discussion. So I want to kind of explore the relationship between the intelligence committees and the subject today at hand, Senator Warner, get us started. Why is cybercrime related to the work product of the intelligence committees as such? Well, Ben, thank you for having us and, and uh, for everyone at this uh, presentation. The truth is, one of the many reasons why Congress is so dysfunctional is that um, we don't have a committee structure that matches a 21st century world. So there is no cyber committee in the U.S. Congress. It touches a variety of, of subject matters and a variety of committees. And at the same time, we have no even technology committee in, in, the, in the Congress. So in a sense, by default, the Intelligence Committee, which at least on the Senate side has in many ways become virtually the default technology committee, because we see all of the challenges from emerging technologies. We see those in the context of both uh, individuals and with state actors. 
has been the one place where the only piece of cyber legislation of any substance, the information sharing legislation of a few years back came, came out, the voluntary information sharing legislation came out. Uh, we continue to look at it probably more so from the nation state actors role on cyber. And I think um, you know, if we were gonna redo the committee structure, there might be a technology slash cyber committee, but in the interim, I think it will fall to us on Intel and because, uh, generally speaking, at least on the Senate side, we still function in a relatively bipartisan way that I think is a nerd to the benefit of, of thinking through these issues in a perhaps less partisan fashion. Congressman, what are, what are your thoughts on this? I, you know, I, I, I look at it and I say the issues that your committee has been, both of your committees have been uh, most publicly engaged with uh, the Russian electoral interference most prominently, the modality or one of the major modalities of addressing that has been cybercrime enforcement, right? And so I'm curious whether that's the kind of core linkage or whether there's a, a sort of more fundamental one. Well, I, I certainly agree with what, what Mark said, and maybe just to build out on that point a little bit, um, you can't conceive of uh, cybercrime as anything other than global. Uh, an awful lot of the bad actors are either uh, abroad, uh, many of them will be either formally associated with a sovereign or informally associated with a sovereign. Even and fle flesh that out. What does in, you know? We we indicted a bunch of Russian state actor hackers and a bunch of PLA state actor hackers for cyber crimes. When you say informally associated with a sovereign, uh, what's that step level down from that that you're referring to? Yeah, and and China's probably not the right model to illustrate the point I was trying to make. China is very hierarchical, very regimented in what they do, which is why the FBI was able to, you know, identify units and rooms and people and indict. The Russians are what I'm thinking of more, and I, I can't I, I can't get you into the gr level of granularity around the other people who are active, whether it's North Korea or Iran. But but the Russians, um, I mean, I think the Internet Research Agency is 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 the best illustrative example. You know, apparently the guy who runs that is. Putin's chef. I'm pretty sure that's not in the Russian constitution as a formal sovereign mechanism. But, you know, the Russians obviously are very interested in chaos and they're very interested in deniable uh, chaos. And that, I think, leads them in particular to employ, you know, not just people in Russia, but I suspect uh, people throughout Europe with the technical capability to achieve their ends. It gives them uh, the ability to deny what they are, in fact, behind. And, and I think, let me just add to Jim's point here. I think we've seen some level of evidence that they may be, you know, spies by day, working literally for the a state service or indirectly, as in the case of the IRA, and you know, criminals at night in terms of networking with other cyber characters, uh, not just in their particular nation, a la Russia, but with networks of uh, cyber criminals around, you know, collaborating on ransomware attacks, collaborating on denial of service attacks in a way that um, we believe probably simply supplements their daytime income with exponentially larger returns on their, uh, their part-time night activities. And of course that their part-time night activities are tolerated by the countries that they're in because their daytime activities are so uh, beneficial to the 
uh, intelligence and, and interests of the country in question, yeah? Tolerated or encouraged, right? I mean, and again, I, I, I know less about North Korea than I do about China and, and, and uh, Russia, which I think is probably true of most government officials, but you know, the sense out there is that North Korea actually requires its uh, government people to bring in revenue, and one of the ways they can do that most simply, obviously, is through, through cybercrime. All right, so you've described a kind of almost seamless web between the state action that either employs or kind of quasi-employs the actors in question and the uh, criminal activities through which they accomplish both the state action and their own private action. I'm interested in both of your sense of what the role of criminal enforcement is, the proper role, the optimal role of criminal enforcement is in addressing uh, this web. Is it a big part of the picture that is underused? Is it a small part of the picture that is being appropriately used given how hard it is to get custody of people? Or is there some you know, other set of state authorities that is going to be the dominant one that this is going to be uh, kind of in support of? How do you see it as a, as, as a part of the, the government's arsenal in responding? Um, take, take a crack at that. Um, I've been frustrated. I've been frustrated by a bunch of things in this realm. It is, it is my opinion that, uh, that uh, the Obama administration, of which I was a supporter, was uh, uh, underwhelming in their response to the Russian attacks. I think, uh, I, I think that response, plus the current president's actions, uh, are sending the signal that Russia and associated entities and people can do what they like. Um, and I've also been frustrated by the fact that I think there's a general acknowledgement that the indictments of the Chinese PLA people and of the Russians will never come to trial. There is value in naming and shaming, but you also give up an awful lot when you come out as detailed as those indictments have in terms of your sources and methods. So I'm very frustrated in this world about what law enforcement internationally will do. Law enforcement obviously can be very effective in places where they have jurisdiction, but, I'm, but it's very frustrating to me because right now, absent a more comprehensive global understanding of how we're going to deal with this stuff, um, yeah, naming and shaming is good, but we also, again, give away an awful lot of what we know and how we know it. And I would echo what Jim said and even maybe, you know, I'll take your frustration and double it. Um, just in the sense that I would argue that that post 9-11 even, go back to Bush and Obama, we've not had a articulated cyber doctrine. So consequently, we, we've been willing to use our tools against second-tier states, Iran, North Korea, but with near-peer adversaries like Russia and China, because we've not had a clearly articulated cyber doctrine. We have been so afraid of cyber escalation uh, that I think we've been kind of open season and open hunting for other nation states and their agents. The kind of normal sense of uh, if you have a major cyber attack, a denial service attack, and you shut down Moscow for 24 hours, you got a problem. You shut down New York for 24 hours, you got a crisis. And consequently, we have been unwilling to lay out in an articulable way 
what our country's strategy, what our red lines are, and and what our willingness to use our own tools on. Let me go ahead and make one, you know, uh, point here, which I don't normally make, which is a compliment to the Trump administration. Uh, one of the things that the Trump administration did do more recently in, in 2018 was they slightly decreased the amount of bureaucratic hoops you have to go through if U.S. Cyber Command were to use potentially offensive capabilities. I think net-net that made sense. Uh, I think it, it, coupling this lack of strategy, articulated strategy and doctrine around cyber, comes also a lack of international norms and standards. If we're going to have an effective cyber regime, we need to, I would argue, not dissimilar to chemical or biological weapons, we need rules of attribution, we need rules in terms of if you do X, and even if the attribution is not to the 95th percentile, and but we can show that it is originating from uh, a, a region or a country, then there should potentially be consequences. But our failure to have those kind of international standards combined with a lack of our articulated cyber strategy and cyber doctrine means that, you know, Forms like this are really important, and we are behind the game, and consequently, whether it is nation-state actors or kind of increasingly not run-of-the-mill but ever more common ransomware attacks, uh, we are you know, behind the criminal activities and need to catch up. Okay, but, I, you know, so in different ways, I think you've both sort of challenged the premise of the conference here. So if we take as, a, as you know, that, that naming and shaming indictments involving state actors are kind of a, give up a lot in terms of sources and methods in order, uh, in exchange for relatively little, and that a fundamental component of the problem is a lack of cyber doctrine in the non-criminal areas, it would follow that we may be overemphasizing criminal enforcement at this point as a way of dealing with this. So I'm, I'm interested for both of your senses, was, was the PLA indictment a mistake? And for that matter, was Robert Mueller's GRU indictment or I, and IRA indictment, both of which gave up a lot in order to not get custody of people, were, the, were those mistakes? I don't think they were mistakes. I think that the level, particularly of intellectual property theft uh, from China, was so great and has once again returned to being so great uh, that short of a full doctrine, at least doing the naming and shaming was important, necessary, necessary but not sufficient. I think we need a more enforceable doctrine. I think, you know, I hope, while not directly the topic, but China's ability to, you know, couple intellectual property theft with a very determined technology investment strategy Combine that with then national champions in areas like Huawei is becoming 5G, and we have a security and economic challenge unlike, I think, anything we've ever faced in our lifetimes and ought to be perhaps a subject of a different uh, conference, but it is, I think, one of the issues of our day, and, and I think we're just starting to wrap our minds around that. And I say that kind of China versus not the United States, but and China's a great nation, be very clear, but the Chinese Communist Party versus 
the West writ large uh, in technology innovation, we've always set the rules, standards, and protocols. That was not the case in 5G. Uh, it increasingly may not be the case in AI, quantum, facial recognition, and um, a lot of this is built upon at least some of the intellectual property that was that was stolen through cyber means and then supplemented by a very aggressive investment strategy. Couple that as well, I think on the on the IRA, I think the while people were not brought to justice uh, in terms of individuals, I do think the indictments were appropriate, and I do think as a nation we have gotten better. And I think we were uh, the 2018 case, both of being willing to get better at the domestic front and also uh, potentially using some of our tools abroad. We're stepping in the right direction. It doesn't mean, though, by any means that we're we're secure in 2020. Yeah, and I I, I agree with. I, I would characterize it exactly that same way. Uh, the indictments were necessary, but far from sufficient. I, I think there's real value. You know, when you talk public policy in the abstract, the Chinese are stealing our IP. It doesn't sink in in terms of popular sentiment nearly as well as actually being able to point to people and indictments and activities. Um, where I think uh, at least two areas where we have maybe three areas really underinvested. Number one, I continue to believe, and we're, we're in the world of sovereigns here, and I'll try to sort of close out with a, with a reference back to the, to, to the subject at hand. I do believe that we told the world that we would respond uh, pretty uh, flaccidly to what was a very serious attack on the 2016 election. Number two, I don't think that we have really done nearly enough to push the development of international norms. And I think some of these things are really hard. Some are less hard. You know, there is a broad agreement that we won't shut down hospitals. There ought to be a broad agreement around cooperating to go after completely stateless rogues. That's a problem for everybody. But I, but I wouldn't then therefore say, we're talking about a fairly narrow slice of the overall cybersecurity question here. When it comes to m- more domestic issues, to ransomware in Baltimore and that sort of thing, there's a huge amount we can do, probably as folks that focus on the intelligence community, a little less relevant to us than it is to the Homeland Security and to the Judiciary Committees, but, um, uh, you know, making sure, obviously, that law enforcement is keeping up with the threats, even, and this is about as unsexy as it gets, but it's probably one of the most effective things. You know, Gartner happens to be in Stanford, Connecticut, so I spent some time with those guys. You know, Gartner will tell you that of all the malware they look at, you know, some tiny fraction, well below 5% of malware, is zero-day stuff, Right. So the obvious implication there is, you know, you can solve a big part of the problem here simply by updating your software and practicing good cyber hygiene. Again, there's nothing sexy about that. That doesn't get talked a lot about inside Fort Meade. Um, But, you know, you solve a lot of the problem just through the basic blocking and tackling uh, of, of, of being smart about how you interact with the with the Internet. And I can just add one. Jim mentioned kind of basic cyber hygiene. Let me give you my one that I think is maybe one of the stupidest things we're doing at this point. And there's a lot that we're doing stupid, so this uh, will let the audience judge. But um, you know, we're about 10 billion IoT devices purchased at this point in, in, into uh, our economy. That'll go roughly to 25 to 30 billion in the next three to five years. I've had bipartisan legislation literally for three years that would say, before the federal government, before any of your federal tax dollars are spent buying an IoT-connected device, there ought to be de minimis security. No embedded passcodes. Let it be patchable. Nothing rocket science-like. You would think, and we're going to build all these giant cyber defenses around all of our, our national security items, yet the bad guys are going to come in through the you know, IoT-connected microwave in the staff kitchen 
because there was no minimum security put in. And the craziness is we finally got it out of our Homeland Security Committee, but industry at the high end has, has been agreeable to that. Industry at the low end and the trade associations have been dreadful. You know, don't want to have that extra nickel spent on the billions of sensors that were being built to put in minimum security. We're going to come back and look so stupid for not having done this uh, that people will say, you know, how did that happen? All right, so what is the part of this problem that we are good at? That is the cyber enforcement problem as opposed to all these other components of it. Uh, let's talk about strengths and weaknesses. What's the part in which we actually are doing well? Well, I'll offer one quick thought. I, I coincidentally started this uh, business 11 years ago. I was, I was sworn in on, on January of '09, And my first term, I was on the Committee on Homeland Security. Uh, and it was startling to me. Um, I'd been a technology banker before that, so I had probably an above-average sense of the evolution of, of, of technology. Uh, in the U.S. Congress, 09, the level of consciousness and capability inside the federal government, and I think to a lesser extent outside, was just primitive. Uh, I mean, you know, people with three stars on their shoulders would come in and look confused when you asked basic cybersecurity questions. That has changed radically in the last 10 years, and I'm not going to say that we don't have a ton of work to do, even, and in particular, in the defense of the federal government networks. We're still not where we need to be, but the progress that the federal government has made, now you've got, you know, FBI is, is, is terrific, Secret Service is terrific, uh, um, really people have sat up and take no, taken notice, and that's, of course, the first step to addressing the problem. My sense is, too, I've got a lot of financial services uh, companies in my district in southwestern Connecticut, but, you know, the investment that that industry in particular, but other industries as well, retail, um, have made has been pretty dramatic. So I think we've gone from a standing start 11 years ago to really being fairly competent today. But that's on the defensive side, I think, right? I, I, the sort of cybersecurity defense side, how how is the government postured in that regard? What How is the financial services industry... I mean, on the enforcement side, if there is an incident, what are we good at in terms of catching the guy who did it, or the, the woman who did it, uh, or the group, the non-state actor that may be backed by a state? What are the parts of that process you look at and say, we're pretty good at that? I think the FBI has gotten better, but I think there is still... Uh, now outside of government, a tendency to still be willing to kind of bury the problem rather than acknowledge the problem. My sense is that uh, just on whether it be hospitals or public entities, the percent of reported ransomware is dramatically lower than the incidence of ransomware in the public sector and for that matter in the private sector. So you know, constantly being willing to move better on cyber hygiene, constantly being, you know, I think in certain areas of critical infrastructure, there there needs to be mandatory reporting rather than simply voluntary reporting. I think we ought to build more incentives, whether from the insurance marketplace or others, to, to make sure ransomware and other attacks are reported. Uh, because, you, you know, no matter how good law enforcement is, if you don't get it reported, you're never going to be able to find the bad guys. Do you share the sense that the Bureau is substantially improved from a forensic point of view? 
I, I do, and not just as an entity, but coordination amongst entities. Um, it doesn't get talked about, but one of the one of the real uh, achievements post 9-11 was the extent to which an awful lot of stovepipes got broken down. So now you see rooms where FBI, Secret Service, DHS, and NSA are all working seamlessly. So, well, that's maybe somewhat an exaggeration, but working really well together. Um, and so, no, I, I agree with uh, Mark's characterization. Would go one step further to say that um, I think that those combined entities are very, very good at post facto attribution. It's, it's pretty hard to get away with something big. The problem is it takes us a little time. It is post facto. We're still struggling to understand how to see things, see bad things happening in real time because, of course, everything changes day by day. And, and let me just add again one thing to Jim's case where not only on the formal kind of law enforcement enforcement side, but the fact that bad cyber behavior is not penalized from the marketplace as well as from the legal structure is pretty awful. I mean, the fact we're a couple years after gross negligence by Equifax, and they took a bit of a hit in the market for a while, but then recovered that there's been no, you know, whatever um, investigations are taking place, way too long, no real penalty of, of any size and scope. You know, if you can be that bad an actor and not pay any price for that with 150 million Americans personalized information where we didn't even choose to be, you know, Equifax customers to have that out into the wild domain and simply build it into the cost of doing business. That is a gross breakdown on our regulatory structure, our criminal structure. And frankly, again, in the, even in the naming and shaming, it was pretty short term. Right. Naming and not shaming. Yeah. Um, all right, so there's an elephant in the room here, which is jurisdiction, right? I mean, you guys are describing a situation in which the forensic capability with a lag is basically there to attribute stuff, to identify people. And we've seen in these state actor indictments just how refined that forensic capability is. But you ultimately don't have the ability to arrest or take custody of the individuals in question unless they're foolish enough to you know, get on a plane and go to the Riviera. So my question is, how much of the problem, if you could snap your fingers and deal with the jurisdictional problem, how much of the problem does that address in the enforcement arena? In other words, how much of it is really technical and how much of it is really jurisdictional? That's a great question, and I'm not sure I've got a... I'm going to let Jim give the really good answer on this one because I'm not sure I know the answer. I do know when we're thinking about international, let's go back to the IRA, when we have NSA and CIA following the bad guys in St. Petersburg and when the IRA entity is creating the fake persona uh, that he's been from New York, but it's Boris in St. Petersburg. And once, you know, Boris as Ben presses the button and the, the message then appears on my device in Virginia, the fact that we kind of have those probably slightly better 
techniques, technologies, and tools on the international side, and we have to then throw it appropriately so. We don't want CIA and NSA doing domestic activities, but throw it over the transom to the FBI, there's going to be not always completed handoffs. And I'm not sure how we uh, jurisdictionally snap our fingers on that because I don't want um, our outward-facing intelligence community dealing on domestic cases. But this is a this is a naughty, naughty issue that uh, maybe groups like this and others can help us sort through because I think it is going to be an ongoing problem. I would. I was trying to rank. You, you, you said is it jurisdictional or technical? I, I think today it's more jurisdictional than it is technical. In other words, you know, again, we have pretty good attribution, name shame. Uh, internationally, we have a huge problem in terms of actually uh, in, uh, bringing people to justice. Actually, internally, we have a pretty significant problem. Look, uh, I, I haven't um, dissected exactly how Baltimore went down, but I have seen other situations where you've had ransomware attacks. And look, it starts with a local sheriff who gets the call, and then the question is, how fast does that get elevated? You know, oftentimes, certain certain local police departments have real capability, including in the city in which we're sitting right now. Some don't. Uh, most states do. Uh, obviously, the federal government does. So really working out um, what is not just a, you know, the federal government's always going to play a big role in this because this is a national slash transnational problem. And so working out our own internal jurisdictional, maybe jurisdiction isn't quite the right word, protocol. You know, again, when the sheriff of a 70,000-person town has something really ugly turn up in that town, how rapidly are experts uh, brought in from the state and federal level? But before, so I guess, I, I guess if I had to rank them, I would say, juris, you know, working through the jurisdictional things is probably uh, today more urgent than, than advancing the technology. But again, I'd come back to the remarkably unsexy stuff of, of, of good defense. I mean, I haven't seen the stats lately, but the number of consumers out there who aren't using two-factor authentication, the number of people who don't patch their software, there's just such low-hanging fruit in the realm of defense. And again, it's not Fort Meade stuff, but it's, you know, PSA saying, if you don't understand what two-factor authentication is, Grandma, let us tell you what it's all about, you know, and, and that would really, I think, move the needle. And the challenging sometimes is not just Grandma, Senator. <laughs> yeah, so... Those are often the same. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's try to rank these. You know, how mu if, if you look at the aggregate cybersecurity problem, how much of it is low-hanging fruit how much of it is that the bad guys are ahead from a technical standpoint, and how much of it is interjurisdictional uh, friction and, and lack of ability to get custody of, of, of bad actors? I'm not sure I understand the distinction between the previous question. I... Well, just, I mean, like, like if, if, you were, if you were thinking purely from an enforcement perspective and, and, or, or an aggregate cyber hygiene perspective, and you could, you, could you, you know, obviously you deal with that low-hanging fruit stuff first because it's low-hanging. But how much of the problem does that take away? How much of it can you take away by um, improving forensic investigation, uh, more manpower, more? And then how much of it is, at the end of the day, 
this very intra intransigent and intractable set of questions that you know you really need Russia's cooperation in order to put away a whole lot of Russia. Yeah, so I, I, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't think of them as alternatives. We should be doing all this stuff. We should be helping the American public better understand good defense. We should be working hard on global norms, uh, and we should be solving the jurisdictional issues. And I think, I think you, know, you know, the international norms are hard, right? Because Korea, Iran, North Korea, I mean, today, right, there's an argument at the UN over this Russian-sponsored uh, structure for, you know, defining criminality in the international internet. But, but let me just land for a second on the concept of, of, of jurisdiction. Um, there's a model for this of real progress made in the last two years, and that's the way we've had an internal conversation at multiple jurisdictional levels on election security. And again, I don't want to be complacent here. We've got a long way to go, but Congress mobilized a whole bunch of money. Uh, we went from a world three years ago or four years ago when states were, particularly red states, given the nature of the president at the time, resisting uh, adamantly federal involvement to a world where actually a lot of money has been put out, a lot of states have made a lot of progress. We need an analog to that in the broader realm of, of attacking and defending against criminal uh, activity. Because uh, I, I just think there's a lot to be done there because just the, at, at the municipal and county level, the capabilities and the understandings are spottier, frankly, than the uh, election infrastructure was in 2016. And let me build off of what Jim just said. I would agree we, we are better. It's still being done in a totally voluntary basis. And echoing again what uh, Jim mentioned, virtually all the registrars are now working at some level with the DHS. The crazy thing is, because elections are state and and local responsibilities, we've given out this money with no basic requirements of how it would be spent. The, the state electoral board could end up making much fancier I voted stickers um, as opposed to improving. So I would argue before we give out more, and again, we can't force this, but we can say, but if you want the federal dough, let's make sure there is post-election audits. Let's make sure there is a paper ballot backup for every polling station in America. That's not going to deal with the cyber issue as much, but it will deal with voter confidence, which is extraordinarily important. If we're going to do really what we need to do, and while we've got broadly bipartisan agreement maybe on the post-election audits and the um, paper ballot backup, the only reason it's not voted on is because the majority leader and the president don't want that to happen. But we, we've not been able to get the kind of similar agreement on kind of upstream the fact that we've got three companies that control 95% or 90% of all the voter files as a data management company. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with those companies, but the fact that there are no standards at all for those companies means the bad guys don't have to end up coming in and changing your votes, but if they take 20,000 folks in Miami-Dade County and move them from one precinct to another on election day, you've got chaos. And that residual, even it doesn't have to be federal government, it could be independent auditors, ought to have some oversight on a national asset as important as the voter file. Bucket number one, to your question about how you break it up, you know, defense, jurisdiction, outside. I'm not sure I can, I agree with Jim, I'm not sure how you can give percentages on that. But I think two other things. One, there's never going to be a moment in time where we can say, okay, Cyber, we're done. We've got it fixed. It's all in the rearview mirror. This, the very nature of it, as we get better, 
the bad guys get better. And I want to come back to um, um, you know my, my 5G challenge and, and some of the others. As we think about kind of next step technology innovation, I mean, if the underlying basis of the next generation technology comes embedded with vulnerabilities, that's a big problem. One of the things that blew my mind was, you know, from the Intel side, we realized back in, I think, 2013, 2014, that Kaspersky Labs were bad actors. It took us another four years to get them off the GSA preferred acquisition list. That doesn't make any sense. And as we move forward on an issue, for example, like, um, like Huawei, which, will, which does pose, and our government had made a, a bad case of, it's not a, a challenge of, you know, a backdoor today, but is in a software-driven system when you have to buy from soup to nuts a single kit approach on next-generation baseline telecom equipment, and at any moment in time, the Communist Party can say, in the next software upgrade, put malware in. That is a long-term national security threat. We are starting to make the case that uh, to our friends and others around the world, you really want to rely on that for in a world where all of your IoT-connected devices are going to ride on, on this system. We're making progress there. My great fear is that the White House isn't, some people in the White House get it, but whether the president gets it or not and is willing to trade this away for another $5 billion of soybean sales. Um, so I think we have to think about this kind of iteration but also realize this is an evolving issue and increasingly as we become more technology dependent and as we think about kind of next levels of innovation, you know, what kind of equipment is going to drive that innovation? What kind of rules, protocols, and standards are going to be around that? Are they going to be rules-based that are based upon open market systems and, and, and dem democratic systems? Or are they going to be a la the Kaspersky Labs where you've got kind of an a, a insidious incumbent, I would argue Huawei the same way, that long-term uh, is, is going to be such a challenge that all the cyber protections in the world isn't going to keep us safe. This episode of the Lawfare Podcast is brought to you by Grammarly. Thanks to Grammarly for supporting the podcast. Grammarly is a communications tool that helps people improve their writing, making it mistake-free and effective. Even the best writers and the top students and professionals need an editor. So we encourage everyone to use Grammarly to do their best work and accomplish more of their goals in writing. Grammarly is a writing assistant that makes you read like you really know how to write, makes you look and sound smarter, and it helps you show yourself at your best in writing. And it's available across just about any platform, including as an online browser extension, there's a desktop editor, there's a mobile keyboard checker. Grammarly is available on Chrome, Firefox, Safari, and Edge browsers, and on platforms from iOS to Android to Windows and Mac. You can accomplish your goals with help from Grammarly. Stop making email typos on your phone. Polish your resume to get that new job. So I really didn't think I needed online grammar help and editing help because, you know, it's kind of what I do for a living. And I've been surprised how much the Grammarly 
app flashes at me that I could probably have written that better, and often I go back and check it now. So if I can get something out of it, I think you probably can too. So go to Grammarly.com slash Lawfare to get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. That's Grammarly.com slash Lawfare for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. I want to go back to uh, election security. There's been an effort in the context of the president's impeachment defense to kind of change the definition of what electoral interference means, right, with this uh, sort of request for an investigation of, of crowd strike in, in Ukraine in 2016. And I worry that the throwing up of a lot of smoke about what constitutes both cybersecurity and electoral interference actually has a kind of confusing effect on the actual set of concerns associated with uh, real potential electoral interference in the coming election. So, Congressman, I'm interested in your sense of when we say we are worried about criminal efforts or non-criminal efforts to interfere in the 2020 election, and when we talk about election security, what are the baskets of issues in your mind that that encompasses, the real issues, not the you know, crowd strike in 2016 in Ukraine issues? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think about this question in, 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 two, in two baskets, uh, to use your terminology. One is a very hard problem for bad guys to solve, and that is actually getting into the systems, uh, changing votes, uh, moving, as Mark suggested, you know, registrations from one jurisdiction to another. And, and why is that hard? Well, it's, it's, it's hard for two reasons, um, and, and I am saying hard. I'm not saying impossible, right, which is why we need to continue to worry and to work about on it. Um, but it's hard because, uh, first of all, fundamentally, as everybody knows, our, our election infrastructure is wildly fragmented. You know, 169 individual towns and cities in the state of Connecticut, all with their own registrars, with their own systems. It's, it's just, it, you know, it is a huge fragmented problem in the country. So that makes it hard. The other thing that makes it a little harder is that people have really focused in the last couple of years on making sure the technology is upgraded. Again, there are issues there, but that's a hard problem to solve. And we've spent, we've spent time on creating the defense. What really worries me today is the easy problem uh, to solve that the bad guys have. And that is how easy in a very open world we are to manipulate. And we're having that conversation indirectly because we're all sort of talking about, hey, Jack Dorsey just said he's not going to put political ads on Twitter and Mark Zuckerberg isn't. We're having that conversation that way. But we need to go down one level of sort of comprehensiveness, sophistication and say, what? first of all, this is not a new problem. Right, A hundred years ago, William Randolph Hearst probably got us into the Spanish-American War with something known as yellow journalism. Right, This is not a new problem. You know, We get fired up, we get polarized, our nerve endings get, uh, get, get, get raw, and whatever we see on Facebook and Twitter starts to drive our behavior. Um, we have not talked nearly enough, and I'm not sure the federal government is the entity to be leading this conversation, about how do we act as good citizens in a great democracy in this world of floods of undifferentiated and unbranded, if you will, data and information. I don't know that we can solve that problem at the government level. We need to, you know, whether, you know, you hear, you hear proposals for bringing back civics in the elementary schools, and I mean, that's sort of, that's at the top of a lot of people's list, but 
we're going to solve the problem of how we respond to attempts to interfere uh, with our elections through conversation amongst ourselves and through a commitment individually to be better critical consumers of information in the service of being better citizens of a democracy. And let me build on what, what Jim said, three points. One, the notion of the president's comments about crowd strike. There is not a single appointed official of this president in law enforcement or in the intelligence community that has not confirmed what our bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee investigation confirmed, and we'll have a report out within the next week or two, that you know the assessment of the intelligence community in 2016 that Russia interfered, they interfered on behalf of Trump against Clinton, was what happened. The wackiness of a th theory that had been also promulgated by the Russians that somehow this was all Ukraine interfering in the 2016, there is not a credible person in law enforcement or the intel community that has that that has any sense at all of any validity of that, yet it's still being promulgated by, you know, Mr. Giuliani and some of his associates, and, and it appears by Mr. Trump. We ought to be concerned about that. I think Jim is right that we've gotten better on the mechanics of protecting our election security. I think we could and should do more. I think we should make the federal assistant contingent on post-election audits. I think we might make the federal assistant contingent on paper ballot backups. There is a, you know, not over the moon, but a um, broadly bipartisan Secure Elections Act that would get 80 votes on the floor of the Senate if the majority leader would let us vote on it. You know, why, would, why, why have we allowed ourselves to make protection of the mechanics, the physical mechanics of our election system, a partisan issue. We would never make protecting the power grid or a financial system a, power, a, a partisan issue. But because of this White House, we have not been able to vote on what the House, I know, has already passed on common sense protection of the, the mechanics. On the issue of misinformation and disinformation, or I might disagree a little bit with Jim, is I think that civics and others are, again, necessary but not sufficient. I do think Again, I've got, and I've got a series of bipartisan bills on, on this subject that may not entirely get it right, but would move in the right direction. The Honest Ads Act that says that if you know if you are uh, placing a political ad and paying for it and with rubles and it's being placed out of Russia, there ought to be the same disclosure requirements that happens on television and radio. Now, Facebook and Google have moved themselves, but I'm not really sure I'm going to rely upon their self-policing when it's something as important as this, and other platforms have not. I think we ought to, the fact that we have to have this kind of second law is a little crazy, perhaps, but we ought to have it. If a foreign government tries to intervene in a presidential election and you discover that, your obligation ought to be not to say thank you. Your obligation ought to be tell the FBI. In terms of social media, I would argue, again, in America of 20 years ago, we would have already set the rules and protocols. Our retreat, again, from that kind of leadership, uh, I, I think is significant. So we've, you know, the Europeans have already moved forward on, on privacy. California's moved forward. Nevada's moved forward. The Brits and the Australians are moving forward on content. But there are a variety of tools in terms of rules of the road around social media platforms that indirectly get at this issue. Very briefly, I think we ought to know what data is being collected about us and what it's worth. 
to again educate Americans that Facebook and Google are not free. They are giant sucking sounds of information and they put value on that. Let's at least let Americans know what that value is. Let's let us have the ability to know whether we're being communicated with by a human being versus a bot. Again, there's nothing wrong with a bot, but we ought to have that data point. I'm an old telecom guy. I'm old enough to remember when it was really hard to move from one telephone company to another until we mandated number portability. We ought to have data portability. If you're tired of how you're treated on Facebook, you should be easily able to transport all your data to Nuco and still be interoperable with the people who remain on Facebook. And an added component of that would be, I think you ought to go ahead and be able to delegate some of those um, responsibilities to a trusted third party. So how do we add more transparency in this social media system so that Americans are, are smarter consumers of the information and misinformation, disinformation they may be receiving? And I think we need to get into a much tougher and more challenging conversation where I'm not sure where it ought to end, but groups like this ought to take it on. One, questions around identity validation. If you have to own your speech, then I think some of the reprehensibleness might go away. In Estonia, they've made the decision as a nation, they had so much misinformation, disinformation, that the only way you go on social media in Estonia with identity validation. Now, maybe that makes sense to even think about in America, whether we want that in Egypt, if you're a political activist, is a very open question. But that question of identity validation and anonymity, I think is going to, be, is going to have to be discussed. The flip side of that is the Section 230 exemptions around content. You know, I think back in the late 90s when that exemption was put in place, it made sense. I'm not sure when 65% of Americans get some or all their news from Facebook and Google, that still makes as much sense, um, and, and that ought to be a fulsome debate. So these, and, and these ideas, again, where I go back to arguing kind of American or Western writ large democratic valued sets of rules need to be thought through. Uh, on a national and international basis, the idea that we're going to simply leave this all to the whims of the platform companies to decide on their own and trust their goodwill, I think is a gross, gross error in judgment and will come back and bite us in terms of the integrity of our democratic process. Because at the end of the day, our adversaries, they don't need to change votes. They just need to make Americans lack faith in the information they receive, and that the, the democratic process is going to accurately reflect the will of the people. Well, Sorry was, for the long answer. No, that was in, impressively comprehensive. Um, and yet, there is one aspect of the Russian 2016 electoral interference that neither of you addressed, and I'm, I want to raise it explicitly, which is in some ways one of the most effective things that they did was simply uh, routine signals intelligence turned outward, right? They stole a bunch of comms and they dumped them in public. Uh, and this is you know, classic cybercrime, right? Stealing, breaking into somebody's uh, systems and stealing their communications. And it's not exactly disinformation, right? It's, an, it's ultimately an information op, but it's real information. It's not uh, interfering with voting machines or counting equipment, but it had a very profound effect on the dialogue leading up to. Uh, and so I'm curious uh, how, in, in your uh, sense that we've made a lot of progress in the basics and the mechanics of electoral interference, 
how vulnerable are we to exactly the same comms operation? You know, you get some John Podesta to click on some link and all of a sudden you're in and you've got the entire, not the campaigns, but the committee, the associated committees, comms, individuals, comms, and then you dump them again. Why shouldn't we expect to see exactly the same operation launched against some disfavored entity uh, in the coming electoral cycle? Well, you should. I, I, mean, I mean, again, as Mark said, this is not a problem that you solve and move on to the next one, right? This is, this is something that is with us and growing. So I think the question is, how can you minimize the probability of that kind of thing? And if you start, you know, the DNC hack, right, which I think is what you were referring to, you, you, can, you can pull that apart. Number one, people need to be, as I think they are, much more conscious of the fact that there is nothing uh, that is not retrievable for good or for ill. Um, and uh, there was a funny little exchange around a tragic situation. My colleague Katie Hill, people will be familiar with what happened to her, a very ugly situation where, where, where photos were made available. And Matt Gates, who I'm not usually in the practice of quoting, said, you know, this, this generation you know, grew up living their, life, their lives uh, online. And so there's very few people in that age group that don't have compromising information. Well, people need to, people need to really listen to that, that, that notion, I, I say, as a father of two teenage girls. Um, you know, start there. If it's, if it's out there, it is recoverable for good or for ill. And then get, you get into sort of more prosaic stuff around what were way inadequate uh, IT practices inside the DNC. Again, this comes back to the theme of, of people really owning the, the need to defend. Um, and then, you know, the lackadaisical quality, and at this point the damage had been done, but the lackadaisical quality of the response, it was, I, f I forget now, but three or four weeks before, you know, the IT people at the DNC actually got together with the FBI. So, uh, again, there's, of course it's going to happen again. Let's learn the lessons along the whole sort of chain of, uh, of tragedy that, uh, that, that, uh, that that example illustrates. It is going to happen again. It is happening right now. So one thing on the misinformation side, you know, that our social media report pointed out, Russia increased their efforts on misinformation, disinformation, post-2016 did not decrease. We got better in 2018 because potentially we'd, we were willing to be a little more offensive. But there are plenty of reports of not just Russia, other nations trying to penetrate our, our political system exactly to duplicate. So uh, we have, we're starting to see some of the, the starting to see some of the, the challenges arise from the OPM hack of a few years ago. I point out we've not yet seen all of the potential downside of the Equifax hack, but at some point I believe we will. And it really raises a couple of, of, of extraordinarily important questions that we're sorting through. If our government discovers that a presidential candidate is being attacked, helped or hurt, you know, I'm not sure that we, they've, the government's put out recently, you know, notification procedures, but I'm, I'm, um, I'm not sure they fully got them right. And you know, how, how you notify, when you notify, you know, if, if someone happens to be the beneficiary of, if a Democratic candidate happens to be the beneficiary of, of Russian activity, you know, does that candidate want to acknowledge that or not acknowledge it? There's huge ramifications here. I think it will be important, and this is why uh, you know the the White House's you know, continued failure to acknowledge this threat. And I give let me be clear: I'm 
challenge with the White House, not the Trump appointees in law enforcement, well, not the Attorney General, of course, but the other appointees in law enforcement, the FBI and the intel community, have been very good about you know, doing their job and standing up against the White House in terms of calling out this behavior. But one of the things that really, been to your point, if Russia steals XYZ information and puts it out in the heart of a presidential campaign, if there is not bipartisan condemnation of that kind of attack, then regardless of the effects, they win because they undermine all of our faith in our system. Let's go to audience questions. Uh, so uh, there are microphones floating around. So if you have a question, signal me. Uh, please identify yourself uh, and uh, pose your question briefly. And please, in the form of a question, if you drone on at length, I will cut you off with a brutal lack of due process. Ma'am. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to ask a question. I'm Kristen Judge, the founder of the Cybercrime Support Network. And I've been in a room with federal, state, and local law enforcement that asked if our nonprofit would help them come up with the strategy for jurisdictional boundaries for cybercrime within the US. So a lot of times people will call law enforcement at the local level if they've been a victim, and then they just pass them on to the next and the next. We are lacking a national jurisdictional guide for law enforcement to deal with cybercrime. Is there a way that you all could help with that? I look forward to the, your report on how we're supposed to take care of that. <laughs> no, I think, it, 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 amen. You know, in one, one of the areas, and, and just kind of not only jurisdictional, we, uh, there was a, a, an amazing case, I don't want to call the individual's name, but individual versus grinder, where huge abuse, not really a, necessarily a cybercrime, but kind of a revenge porn, and, and really put a person through extraordinarily outrageous activity, and... Grinder used the Section 230 exemption to say they bore no responsibility at all. So that's kind of, I'm not sure it falls neatly into the cyber bucket, but it is, again, an outgrowth of this kind of uh, information aid-driven negative activity. Sir. Thank you. John Frumholtz. Uh, given the breathtaking complexities of the topics we've been talking about, is it worth considering the nation-backed uh, actions and the for-profit actions as separate matters? Or should they be still, or should we try to handle it as a unified issue? I think it has to be handled in a unified way. I mean, you know, not only does cyber crime know no national boundaries, it certainly doesn't know the difference either technologically or jurisdictionally between the government and the non-government. I mean, you know, we, we send our most sensitive stuff over uh, the same fiber that uh, the, the Gmail uses. Um, and so, no, I think it, I think it has to be. And, and, and I do think there's a lot that can be done there. You know, the 2015 Cyber Security Information Sharing Act, uh, which was very controversial um, and remains controversial for a bunch of reasons, mainly the handling of uh, personally identifiable information, um, in the end, it did not create nearly the robust interaction between the private sector and, uh, and the federal government that we had hoped. And I, I understand uh, there's, 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 there are some serious privacy issues that get posed by that. But we cannot let that get in the way of the, of the fact that we eventually are going to need to have a real-time 
protective of our, of our rights to privacy, a real-time, ongoing, second-by-second -second conversation between the government and the, uh, and the private sector if we're going to counter these threats writ large, whether it's, you know, deliberate Chinese hacking or, you know, a bunch of guys doing ransomware out of a basement somewhere. They're, all those jurisdictional boundaries need to be, in my opinion, swept aside. Ma'am? Ben Piger, uh, UC Hastings Law and former State Department. Thank you so much. It's always uh, reassuring to know that there are some level-headed people uh, left in our government. I'm worried uh, not only about uh, criminal hacking and information dumping, as Ben mentioned, but criminal hacking and information withholding. How do we know and what can we do about uh, potential hacks, past or future, in which information is used for leverage uh, rather than for publicity purposes? Great question, and um, Compromat 101. And uh, I'm not sure that we have fully sorted that through. We There's a lot of speculation that, you know, since most of the attribution around OPM has been to China now, uh, that that may be the case in point. If you've got all those files, background files, on you know, folks who served in our intel community, that puts everyone at risk. It, it goes into an even thornier issue, again, probably not for today, but for another time of how do you have a person be undercover in a digital age, even with their digital footprints, but it is a, I think it is a, that's a whole nother realm. All right, do we, uh, we have more questions? Yes, back there. Thank you, good morning. Um, my name's Neil Walsh, I'm the head of cyber at the United Nations. Congressman, one of the challenges that I see day in, day out, is that politicians around the world don't have the level of knowledge that you had or have, or that, uh, that the senator has. What more can you do? What more can other organizations do to, to lift the level of knowledge of policymakers and politicians, especially in countries where you don't have an intelligence community like the US has? Yeah, that's, that's, that's very kind. Uh, clearly, Mark and I have, uh, have succeeded in, uh, in, in, in over-impressing you with our, with our, uh, our knowledge. Well, um, so, so two thoughts um, to that. There's, that's probably a, you know, an hour-long conversation, but two thoughts. Number one, this is going to happen naturally. Uh, we now see you know, people in their early 30s, let's say, becoming members of Congress, and those are people who, as they say, are digital natives. So this entire practically freshman class in the House of Representatives that came in, these are people like Dean Phillips and, you know, uh, Tom Malinowski and everything. They are people who grew up uh, uh, using tools that folks that are, you know, in their 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s in the Senate um, uh, didn't. And therefore you lead to, you know, you, you see the kind of questioning of Mark Zuckerberg that you saw certainly the first round in the, in the did I say Senate? Um, so I think this is a problem that is going to get gradually better just for demographic reasons. Number two, um, uh, we need to do, here's the sort of dirty laundry of the United States Congress, we need to do a much better level of, we need to do a much better job educating our staffs and the infrastructure that supports the elected officials. One of the things that I would really like to see done, and actually we've made some progress in this regard, is restoring um, the uh, Office of Technology Assessment, the, o the OTA. It well preceded my time, but everybody who was around in that era said this is what kept Congress smart. It was a creature of Congress. It you know, had all sorts of resources available uh, to staff and to, and, 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 and to me uh, members. But uh, 
I, I think the focus really has to be initially, while that demographic change is happening, uh, on the staff. The, the life of a senator or of a member of the House is, uh, you know, lived in 15-minute increments between Social Security, Medicare, Syria, uh, the debt, and, and so uh, a really concerted effort to make sure that the permanent infrastructure, the staff, the hopefully bringing back the OTA would really, I think, move the, the Congress forward. Sir. Hi, I'm Garrett Hink with Carnegie Endowment for National Peace. Staying on the subject of politicians, we've heard about how to combat foreign interference in our elections, but when we have an entire media ecosystem in our country and a set of politicians in one particular party, the Republicans, that encourage foreign interference and readily accept and use disinformation to their political ends, how do we adopt not a technocratic strategy but a political strategy for combating it? Um, There's an easy one for you. Yeah. You're seeing me torn. I, you know, I'm an elected official in a very polarized time, so I'm very much in the trenches of, of fighting the partisan aspect. And it is true, and there will be Republicans in the room. I don't disagree with your premise, and, and it's profoundly concerning uh, to me. So I don't, I don't know how that plays out. And, and let me not get into the politics of what a second term may, be, may mean in terms of validating the dismissal of truth. Um, but... What I do want to say that is maybe a little less partisan in its inclination is that you're not ever going to solve the problem of determining truth in a political context. I, I must say, and I lose friends for saying this, that I have some sympathy for the point of view that Zuckerberg has taken uh, in the sense that, God, don't ever try to introduce an arbiter of what is true or what is false, because very little in the universe, and almost nothing in the political universe can be so judged. So the example I've been using in the last couple of days or so is, you know, here's one statement about Medicare. Medicare is the most effective social insurance program ever developed by an industrialized country. Statement number one. Statement number two. Medicare is mathematically doomed. Those two things are both true, but obviously one appeals to one, one segment of the population. So we need to get away from the notion that we can have an arbiter of truth in the political arena, even as we hopefully go to the place that I was trying to encourage us ineloquently as I was doing it, of being better, more critical, more thoughtful consumers uh, of information. Sir. Hi. Uh, I'm Chuck Jangel. I'm at AIG, insurance company. Uh, Senator Warner said it. So he's not here, so I can't ask him directly. He talked about incentivizing cyber insurance companies or insurance companies to help report ransomware. And I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on that, but what builds on that is the same thing we have problems with, I think law enforcement has, is that you know, private companies do get their lawyers involved first, and they're looking to protect the reputation and privilege, not only privacy, when these events happen. So there's a kind of a lag, if not a complete impediment to, to sharing information, and if there's a way to incentivizes public companies not to risk themselves in, in, in sharing information on these things with their colleagues and, and law enforcement. Yeah, we, we, we obviously have work to do. You know, somebody pointed out to me a couple years ago that, that uh, in the realm of, uh, of uh, cyber attacks into the private sector, it's the one area in which the victim, i.e. the company, is also sort of considered the perpetrator. And in some cases, that will obviously be, you know, if there's inadequate protections, if people aren't employing best practices, et cetera, that might actually be a legitimate argument. But we are clearly going to need to do, as we tried to do in 2015 with the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, we're going to need to carve out uh, whatever you want to call it, 
indemnification, uh, safe harbors that create this sharing. And I think the other principle that is important, and that, that'll make people uncomfortable, um, but, but you know, if we are in fact gonna have a world in which information flows in real time between private and public sector, we're going to do that. The other thing I think uh, is important here is how we think about the regulatory structure. In the financial services world, which is where I spend a chunk of my time, we often contrast the American uh, financial regulatory system with the, in particular, British but European system, or even better, the way we regulate, the way the FAA regulates um, uh, our, our air travel system. Um, one is more punitive in its orientation. You know, the SEC spends a bunch of times nosing around and then brings suit. Another one is much more collaborative in orientation. The FAA companies are encouraged and protected for self-reporting problems. They're 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 examined, etc. So I, I I do think that 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 we need to consciously evolve the way we talk about this in the direction. Uh, of the FAA. It's not a terrible metaphor, right? I mean, it, actually, it, is, it probably is a terrible metaphor. Obviously, a plane falling out of the sky is very different than you having your credit card uh, hacked. But, but in some ways, the stakes are, 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 are equally serious in terms of, of, of their impact. So I think, I think evolving the regulatory structure with that as an underlying philosophy is going to be important. Ma'am? Thanks very much. My name is Agoja Dama Isaiah for Civil Society for the United Nations. Um, we're all aware that um, cybercrime is a threat to, nation, to national peace and security. I'd like to ask a question directly. Recently, a large number of Nigerians are arrested in Texas for money laundering and cybercrime. How is the U.S. government um, dealing with this issue um, as regards um, cybercrime, which is being perpetrated by Nigerians here on U.S. soil? Thank you. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure I have a. A, a super good answer to that question because I'm only passingly familiar with the details of that case. But in some ways, that's the special case that we haven't talked a lot about. If you are in the United States committing criminal acts by hacking into computers, stealing passwords, whatever it may be, in some ways, that's the easy problem to solve because you're here, uh, there's a good chance we'll detect it, and we have the jurisdictional authorities to... Uh, uh, to deal with that. So um, again, I'm not I'm not super familiar with the specifics of those of of, of that case, um, but in some ways it's the easy one. It's a lot harder, obviously. Uh, I, I guess they, these were Nigerians, you know, Nigerians. If if they're in Nigeria now, it's a much much more challenging thing. And I'm not even sure that uh, we've done enough to sort of in, um, uh, energize the MLAT process, which is how we would typically go after people internationally. You know, I, I spend time with our, our legats in, in, in various embassies, and this is not an area, you know, they've been focused on drug trafficking, human trafficking, et cetera. This is probably something we could do, which is better attune the whole MLAT process to, to going after these sorts of crimes. So we have time for one more question, and uh, the mic is in the hands of the gentleman up here. Hello, and thank you, thank you for the opportunity. Um, Representative Hines, building on something that you brought up about uh, the protocols and the kind of disjointed approach to addressing uh, these crimes when they are reported, do you think that the fact that there's 18,000 different law enforcement agencies here in the U.S. kind of builds uh, false barriers that kind of interrupt that flow of information here in the United States? Oh, un un unquestionably, uh, uh, unquestionably. I, I, you know, um, relative to Europe, uh, we're just a culturally a very different place. That's true in our 
the way we handle education, right? I mean, every town in Connecticut has its own board of education, and we have a state board of ed, and the federal government doesn't get to mess around at all. Well, not, not at all, but, but in any meaningful way in state and municipalities. So this is our culture, right? And um, of, all, of all the things that are, is not likely to change in this country anytime soon will be the concept of local law enforcement, you know, state-level law enforcement. Remember, uh, Ben will remember this. I mean, the FBI is only, what, 100-plus years old? Just about 100. Just 100 years years old. So the, bit, the very concept, the concept of a national police force in this country is whatever it is, three or four generations old. So um, that, that is, I suppose, a little bit of an impediment to a more French-style, unitary, dirigiste kind of way of doing things. Um, but, we, but, but we can, it's not insurmountable, really. It's not insurmountable. I talked earlier about the efforts that have been made since 2016 on, on election security. Uh, another analog or analogy would be um, the remarkable work, actually, that was done uh, post 9-11 in terms of actuating state and, and, and municipal police to look for the indicators of terrorism. And again, it's nothing you ever celebrate because, of course, something will get through because of the jurisdictional issues. But, you know, today, local police forces almost always have somebody with access to classified information. They're in rooms with the FBI. They have access to, uh, you know, uh, national level information that might be valuable. So again, I'm not, I'm not saying we've solved that problem. I'm just saying there are analogies out there for dealing with this that we, as an, as an uh, you know, we will always be fragmented in this country in terms of our sharing of power, but I think that there are analogies for dealing with it. All right, we have come to the end of our allotted time. Uh, we could go on uh, at greater length, but we can't. Uh, so uh, please uh, join me in thanking Congressman Himes and uh, Senator Warner, though he is no longer here, uh, for this extraordinary conversation. You know, people, people think that uh, members of Congress don't actually do uh, deep thinking on policy and and or or anything, and I think the last hour and a quarter has really shown that at least some actually do. So please join me in thanking them. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, share the Lawfare Podcast, talk about the Lawfare Podcast at dinner parties, and you need to rate us and review us on whatever podcast distribution service you use. And of course, you need Lawfare swag, which you can acquire at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is, as always, performed by the one, the only, Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.